So we're now up to a team of five, but we're doing some fun and exciting things. And, and we like to think of ourselves as sort of a scrappy startup within the USGA. So you mentioned the lean startup, and I think the premise of the lean startup is to be able to start with a very minimally viable product, very low risk, and actually put it into market and see what happens. And that's that's what we did. So we spent a few thousand dollars on loggers rather than a few hundred thousand dollars. And we didn't have to stand up a support team. We're kind of faking it internally and seeing what happens. And we've been able to then, if we let 100 golf courses know we have this service and can take us up on it, well, now we've got a real answer about what the likely market market penetration might be. And more importantly, we've got a manageable number of customers that we can actually conduct in-depth interviews to before and after the case and ask them questions about what they felt was compelling about the service and what value it brought to them. And we can tell stories about their experience and improve our product offering in the end and set us up in a much better way for scaling the service if we do think it looks like something that the market would like to take advantage of. And, right. And so, so far, that's been a very helpful and informative process. And it, it means we can do something cheap and fast. And if we do fail, we fail without having a whole lot of negative consequence. And then we can decide to either go back and retool that effort based on our feedback or pivot to a new offering, or if we decide that this was a good idea, but it just doesn't have legs, well, then we can move on to the next thing. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks for joining us. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at www.mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. If you'd like to receive our monthly newsletter, please sign up on the Mod Golf Podcast website to receive the latest news relating to the innovative future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Matt Pringle, who is the Senior Director of Research, Science, and Innovation with the United States Golf Association. Matt has been with the USGA since 2000 after completing his doctoral thesis at McMaster University and has held the positions of Senior Research Engineer, Research Manager, and Technical Director in the Equipment Standards Group. In 2010, Matt was named to Sports Illustrated Golf's 40 Under 40 as one of the most influential people in golf under 40 years old. Beginning in 2016, Matt has led a new team at the USGA called Research, Science and Innovation with a mission to create innovative tools that help golf facilities improve the golf experience and reduce the consumption of key resources. His team also organized the 2017 North American Golf Innovation Symposium in Vancouver, BC, where I am right now, and will stage it again in 2019 in Japan. So with that, hey, Matt, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thanks, Colin, very much for having me and nice to talk to uh, a fellow Canadian. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that, hey, let's get us started here. And could you please share with us, Matt, your personal and professional backstory? And then I'm going to put you on the spot here and I want you to follow that up with your first ever golf experience. Sure. Okay. Well, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I, I was uh, born in Nova Scotia, uh, Annapolis Valley, Nova Scotia, as a Navy brat. My dad was in the Navy, so I, I moved around a lot, which I think explains why I like to move around so much professionally and try new things all the time. I went to high school in Nova Scotia and then moved on to Queen's University to do my bachelor's in mechanical engineering. And I joined a, what was a pretty modest size engineering consulting firm in Mississauga, Ontario called Hatch Associates, where they work primarily in metal smelting and tunnel boring and some big industrial projects. And at the time, pretty much every boss I had had a PhD. 
And I got a chance around 1995 to go back to school with a nice scholarship. So I went to McMaster University to study finite element analysis of two component flows. So those are mixtures of fluids and solids. So uh, lots of applications in industrial processes and environmental controls. And coincidentally, as I was sort of wrapping up my PhD in and around 2000, my father happened to be posted to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, which was a hop, skip, and a jump away from Pebble Beach, where they're having the, the 2000 right, Open that, right. that Tiger ran away with. And so I was looking for tickets to that Open, and they happened to have a job posting for a research engineer. And so I fired off a, a quick resume, not thinking that anything would come of it. And lo and behold, that one little decision, that one little coincidence led to now a 19-year career at the USGA. So I, I moved from Hamilton, Ontario in 2000, and we've been here ever since in New Jersey. My wife is a process control expert. She has a PhD in chemical engineering, same schools, Queens and McMaster. And uh, she works for DuPont and has worked there for also 19, close to 19 years. <laughs> and we've got two little girls. Well, they're not so little anymore. They're 12 and 11. Big swimmers, great at school, and uh, both like play an instrument, flute and clarinet. Very nice, very nice. Okay, so I, I want you, I don't know if you're, you're ducking this question here, so nope. I want to hear your, your, your first ever golf experience yep. here, so share that. Sure. Well, I, I, was, I was introduced to the game by my uncle. My uncle was a big sports nut. He is a lifetime hockey coach in Kentville, Nova Scotia named Doug Eaton. He's very, mm. very famous there. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago and, and he's got a, a dedicated section of the rink in Kentville. He introduced me to both hockey and golf. Our first experience was on a par three attached to a mini putt spot just, just outside of Kentville. And that was definitely my first experience. And then the, the, probably the, the first big course I remember being on was my dad in the Navy. I played a lot at Heartland Point in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Got it. Got it. Okay. So let's move forward again, or I guess really back or in between here to 2000 when you applied for the job mm -hmm. with the USGA. So had you even thought about a career in golf? It sounds like with your background, how, how did you see a fit there? What was the actual job posting specifically that you applied for at that particular time? Sure. Well, you know, I hacked around golf courses, you know, a few times a year for quite a long time growing up, but I didn't really get addicted to the game until I went back to grad school. I was able to join Dundas Valley, right. uh, which is just outside of Hamilton. It's a Stanley Thompson design. I was able to join that for, I think it was like 500 bucks back <laughs> in the day. And uh, that allowed me to play anytime except for Saturday mornings, but I could practice there even on Saturday mornings. So I used to play and practice quite a bit, but I was definitely not looking for a job in golf. I probably didn't know they had right. jobs in golf for, for a mechanical engineer. In fact, that my plan was to go back to the consulting firm I worked for. But I saw this job posting and it was in our equipment standards department. So that's the group that makes the club and ball rules. And they were looking for a mechanical engineer with a master's. And I hadn't quite finished my PhD. So I figured that might qualify me as a, uh, as a master's student. And I fired off a resume and, and went down and, and interviewed and it took them quite a few months to make up their mind, but uh, once they did, they, they offered me the job and I, I leapt at it. So 16 years later, as I did mention in the introduction there, you've worn many different hats there in, in what yeah. you've been doing. So let's move forward to 2016, yes. of course, with the group now, the Research Science and Innovation Group. So can you sure. tell us the mission there or, or describe that to us about what it is, what your mandate is with, uh, with the group that you've, you head up there, Matt? 
Sure. Well, I, you know, I can probably sort of back up a couple of years even be- before that group. In the Equipment Standards Department, we have a team of engineers, mostly mechanical engineers and people who are pretty savvy with math. And so while I was doing and, and our team was doing a lot of equipment related things, we were also kind of trying to apply science and math and engineering to some other issues on the golf course. One of the first that comes to mind is pace of play. The USGA decided to launch an initiative to try and help improve improve pace of play at golf courses. And, you know, a lot of people, when they talk about pace, they like to blame the golfer. They like to say, well, that group in front of me is so slow. If, if they would just speed up, there'd be no problem. And, and actually, it turns out to be a very much a congestion problem, just like on a highway. So telling the group in front of you to go faster is just about as effective as telling the car in front of you to go faster when you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic. So that was a way that I started to get in, involved in applying math and engineering and research and ultimately some innovation to problems in golf also worked on a device that we wanted. We wanted a portable device that was able to establish how firm the playing surfaces on the golf course were. For equipment standards, I was especially interested in how firm fairways were to, to help understand bounce and roll off of drives. But we, you know, so we came up with a nice little device, which we call True Firm now. And we quickly realized, well, we could use this thing for greens. And we were coming off of 2004 at Shinnecock where, you know, the greens did get overly firm. And so right time, right place, this device became something that was quite interesting and intriguing. And we were able to start using it at Pinehurst in 2005. And it started off as pretty geeky looking device connected to a backpack with a laptop computer in it. And eventually we got it down, honed it down to a little handheld computer. And now that device is used at all of our championships and our green section agronomists uh, who consult to golf courses all over the country and, and around the world use it to help superintendents, you know, establish a good firm conditions, good playing conditions. And it's been used at several major championships around the world. So that was a lot of fun. So the point of the story being, while I was in that sort of equipment regulation world, I was also dabbling with some other ways to bring science and engineering to help golf. And late 2015, my now boss, Dr. Rangeris, came and said, hey, we'd like to take some of the things you're doing and, and be a little more intentional about it because there are problems in golf that need some new and fresh solutions. And so we started up a very small team. Another mechanical engineer came with me from our equipment department and a guy that I've been working with for quite a long time here on pace of play issues. So it was just a team of three of us. We've now added a, a young woman who's a data scientist and she's fantastic and a, a seasoned chemical engineer who does a lot of project management work and research work with us. So we're now up to a team of five but we're doing some fun and exciting things. And and we like to think of ourselves as sort of a scrappy startup within the USGA. Right. And that's a great segue to uh, to something I want to touch on. And we had this in our, our previous conversation a week or so ago. It talked about treating what you're doing within the USGA as a startup, a very entrepreneurial mindset and, and having the kind of the cultural latitude to give you that opportunity to test things, to experiment, to fail and kind of see what works and, and come up with solutions to problems that you touched on earlier here. So I'm very interested also, we talked about, and some of our listeners have heard me talk about this before, and that is the lean startup methodology as far as, and it doesn't just apply to tech startups, but using that ability to prototype and very quickly test things and get them into market and get some feedback there. So can you talk a bit about that as far as the kind of the experimentation of what you're doing and maybe give an example of one of the, the systems or tools that you're creating and applying that to? 
Yeah, sure. So our focus product right now is is actually a tech product. So we have a cloud-based application. It began as a cloud-based application. It's now more of a cloud-based platform. And the, the platform itself, the, the main focus of it is that it's a map-based application primarily aimed at facility operators. It's, it's not a golfer-facing product. The original functionality was to allow superintendents to set how they treat the golf course, so the various the various tasks that they'll do on the golf course, so mowing and irrigation and pesticide applications and nutrient applications, as complex or as detailed as they want to get to each of the various playing surfaces, so tees, fairways, bunkers, greens, rough, other out-of-play areas, and so on and so forth. And the idea of, of the application was that they would be able to run what-if scenarios around if they change how they maintain different areas of the golf course or change the boundaries of the fairways. And so that allowed them then in real time to determine how changes would affect their consumption of resources. So you mentioned our mission statement of trying to improve the golfer experience while at the same time reducing the consumption of resources. So that allows them in real time to see what the effect of changing how they maintain the golf course or changing the boundaries of the playing surfaces would impact their use of those different resources. But we want to do that without affecting the golfer experience or possibly even improving the golfer experience. So you mentioned the lean startup. So one of the things that we did is to create a very minimally viable product in what we did is we went and we bought some off-the-shelf GPS loggers. They're not real-time. They're not connected to either Wi-Fi or the cell networks. They look like little USB sticks. And what we do is we send a kit of 200 of those to golf courses and they'll go out and hand them out to golfers and they'll carry them around either in their pocket or clip to their belt. And it'll track their location uh, every five seconds. And then they, they collect those back up along with some some metadata, some demographic information from each of the golfers, put that into a box and send it back to us. We'll upload the data and create heat maps for them. And so that way the superintendent or the golf professional can see which parts of the golf course golfers are going and maybe more importantly, where they're not going. And so by now having a way to model changing how you take care of the golf course superimposed with heat maps of where golfers are going, you should be able to take areas that are really seeing virtually no play and significantly reduce the amount of effort that you put into maintaining those and either pocket that as savings or move it to areas where you are getting a lot of golfer traffic and you would like to try to improve the playing conditions. So what we did is maybe traditionally you would create a business model around, call it that GPS service. You might create a business model and you might go out and you might do market research and you, you get 50 out of 100 superintendents saying, oh yeah, I would definitely sign up for that for $899. And we might then extrapolate that and say, well, there's 15,000 golf courses and half of our samples said that they would sign it up. So that's 7,500 golf courses at $900 a year. And you go, okay, well, that's a good business model. We can invest in a big infrastructure, we can create our own loggers and we can institute all kinds of systems and we can stand up a support model. And then we might put that into market and find out that actually only 2% of the superintendents actually take you up and, and here we are holding the bag. So we didn't do that. And I think the premise of the lean startup is to be able to start with a very minimally viable product, very low risk, and actually put it into market and see what happens. And that's that's what we did. So we spent a few thousand dollars on loggers rather than a few hundred thousand dollars. And we didn't have to stand up a support team. We're kind of faking it internally and seeing what happens. And we've been able to then, if we let 100 golf courses know we have this service and 10 take us up on it, well, now we've got a real 
answer about what the likely market penetration might be. And more importantly, we've got a manageable number of customers that we can actually conduct in-depth interviews to before and after the case and ask them questions about what they felt was compelling about the service and what value it brought to them. And we can tell stories about their experience and improve our product offering in the end and set us up in a much better way for scaling the service if we do think it looks like something that the market would like to take advantage of. Right. And so, so far, that's been a very helpful and informative process. And it, it means we can do something cheap and fast. And if we do fail, we fail without having a whole lot of negative consequence. And then we can decide to either go back and retool that effort based on our feedback or pivot to a new offer. Or if we decide that this was a good idea, but it just doesn't have legs, well, then we can move on to the next thing. That's exactly what uh, what the lean startup methodology is all about. That idea that that feedback loop that you put something out in market with just a couple of features, rather than and I see this in the entrepreneurship mentoring that I do, and it's always a classic thing. And I'll have to say, about six or seven years ago, we were guilty of this too. So it's not like I'm I'm preaching and, and judging people. Where that natural inclination is to want to create something that's perfect and sh- and shiny and beautiful. And as I like to use it with entrepreneurs, it's like you have your beautiful baby. And you don't want anybody to tell you that your baby is ugly. So you kind of keep it close to you and you don't want to actually put it out in market and test that in case someone tells you your baby is ugly. But as you very well know there, Matt, like you've done, get it out in market, get some feedback, start to iterate and test the design and then improve it based on the feedback you have rather than just these assumptions that you have by just market research online, just getting out there in case get out of the building and get onto the golf course like you've done to start to find out what actually gets traction and what actually works and what doesn't and then reduce the things that don't, enhance the things that do, add some new features and reduce the ones that don't work at all. Yeah, you got it exactly right. There is still, and I'm sure that your listeners and that are in this sort of innovative space and you, you personally have experienced it, but when it comes to financing and support for things, there is still very much a kind of a knee jerk. Well, you need to show us a viable business model. And when you think when you're, if you're running a, a factory that's producing 100 million light bulbs a year and your engineer can prove that a new process will save them a tenth of a penny per light bulb and it'll cost $200,000 to implement it, that's very cut and dry and, and open and shut and, and very little risk. But when you've got something that's totally new, and you're putting very much a hypothetical in front of customers, the risk of getting skewed or misleading information is so high that it just doesn't make sense to create a genuine or or an old-fashioned business plan. You know, I like to say two things. I know for a fact that, you know, any market research we do is probably the best market research we can get, but it still has a ton of uncertainty around it. And then I'm sure that if I was in a CFO's position, I, I probably never see a business plan that doesn't show that it's going to show positive ROI in three to five years. So we could certainly game that system and guess that we're going to have a viable product, but it's just too risky. So we've adopted, I don't know if you've run across the terminology, but we've adopted this sort of business hypothesis mentality and coming from as a scientist, it very much is the same as the scientific method of make a hypothesis, conduct an experiment, and prove or disprove that hypothesis before moving on. And and so one of the things that we've become quite good at and are quite devoted to is this concept of conducting a true experiment in market and making the appropriate measures to determine, okay, I know how many people are aware of my product. Now I'm going to go out and 
put measures in place to find out how many are interested in that product and so on and so forth down the marketing funnel until I can actually measure how many of those interested people I convert to a sale. And then, and then it also allows us to really take true measurements of what it's going to take to support that going forward. And then after that process, then after that experiment, that true experiment, then we can put in place a business plan that actually I can feel comfortable with and, and anyone who's looking to either provide executive support for this or, or finance this can get behind. Right. What I love about everything you're telling us here is I hope for my listeners, especially those that are in established golf industry organizations, whether they are like with the USGA or if they are a privately held corporate entity, they're in a business here. One of the issues that I run into, bump into with the golf industry is the, I wouldn't say necessarily the fear, but the kind of the anxiety attached to, well, we don't want to try anything new because we got to focus on what we're doing here. We don't quite know the path forward. And what you've established here, what you've told us is approaching what you have with your research science and innovation group. It is like a startup in the sense, and, and I want you to kind of elaborate a little more on, on this, Matt, but it sounds to me like if you come up with ideas, and I've read that you have yourself, you're the co-inventor and you have seven US patents related to golf. So you're thinking like an entrepreneur. So if you come up with a new idea and you need to test this, like I said, a business hypothesis, do you have a board or a group with a CFO and others that are really running like a venture capitalist type of group that you're pitching to? and then ideas that you can prove and say, hey, we need this and this is the problem, this is the solution, this is what we need, just like I hear all the time with startups pitching to investors. And then you get what's called metered funding rather than you saying, yeah, well, I need a million dollars for this. And you're saying quite fine grain, no, no, we need this and this is what we're testing. This is the first stage that we're doing and then we'll come back to show the results that we're looking for if we've reached those or if we validated the idea and then you kind of move your way through. So can you kind of shed some light on on that a bit more of, of how it works internally there, of moving ideas forward that may survive or may actually fail fast and then be able to move on to something else. Yeah, I think that's you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And I will say that we're very much sort of organizationally, I think, while our group is being stood up, I think a lot of other teams here at the USGA are adopting very much that empathy for the customer mentality. And so we're definitely advocating that budgeting and, and approvals process start to adopt a very similar approach. And so now, even very recently, submitting through our executive team and then up to our board, what we call our executive committee, are not now a business model, but a business case is what we've referred it to. And, and I would like it, what we're looking to do with our app in 2019 is to run a little bit larger test with all the variables that we talked about around the marketing and the technology and the support to determine whether it is something that's worth creating a fully-fledged business from. And so I, I would say that we're right in the middle of sort of a Series A financing kind of approach. We do have people on our board, on our executive committee, who very much come from the venture capital world. A couple have participated in our innovation symposium. So these are, these are genuine Silicon Valley venture capitalists. And so they know what they're talking about. And I'm a mechanical engineer, and I don't have an MBA. Uh, I've got a very dog-eared uh, copy of Eric Reese's book actually right in front of me. And I, I do subscribe to the Harvard Business Review and, and try to, as much as possible, sort of educate myself so that, so that our group can educate, hopefully try to educate the rest of the USGA around how to manage these potentially risky ventures and to sort of crawl, walk, run. 
Right. And, and speaking about educating the USGA and others, and you just touched on this in your previous comment there, let's dig into the North American Golf Innovation Symposium. Well, you had in Vancouver a couple of years ago and what you'll be doing in 2019. Can you talk about what the catalyst was for that, what the, the overall purpose and the why, what you look to achieve, and then what you're, you're going to be doing in Japan? Well, our group, I mentioned our, our mission is to use science and research and data and innovation to help golf facilities. Those are our primary customer. And, and, when, and of course, their customer is golfers. And so we're keeping them very much front and center. But to try to help them offer an improved golfer experience, and that can mean many things to different segments of, of the golfing population, try to improve their golfer experience while at the same time reducing their consumption of key resources. Now, the USGA invests a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of money in the game and have done so. You know, our green section has funded turf grass research for about 100 years. So I'm going going to guess that no matter where you are in the world, that the grass that you play on and the way that golf courses are built and maintained has been heavily influenced by the USGA over the years. So while our group and then the USGA has part of its strategic plan is to help improve golfer experience and improve the productivity at golf facilities, we know we can't do it alone. And so I think the Innovation Symposium in Vancouver in 2017 was an attempt to bring some industry folks together, but also bring in a lot of golf facility operators so that they can listen and pressure test some of the, the ideas that we're trying to promulgate. So what we did in Vancouver is we had three sessions. The first was devoted to the golfer experience. The second was devoted to facility productivity, we called it. And then the third was a session that what we like to call innovation and governance. So we talked a lot about some of our more traditional activities that, that a lot of people would know us for, the rules and governance the game, as well as some of our championship information. What we've done for now a year and a half, and it'll be two years later in March in Tokyo, is we were invited by the Japanese Golf Association to bring that same philosophy and gathering to Tokyo. And we're going to reprise two of those sessions. So we're going to come back again with golfer experience, facility productivity, because those are very central to our mission. And then we're going to supplement that with a third session on urban golf, which I think is something that is, as populations around the world are moving from the rural and suburban regions into urban areas and potentially further and further away from golf courses, that places an, an increasing importance to me on, on urban golf because now that's a place where urban dwellers, city dwellers are going to be able to play. And so we're trying to bring an increased focus on the importance of those to, to not just golf, but to the well-being of the community and cities, and also highlight some other ways that golfers can have a golf experience that isn't necessarily on a green grass facility. Think simulators and some of these more advanced range facilities as a way to increase interest in the game and hopefully ultimately convert them over to some green grass golf. Right. And I'm sure as you're aware, Matt, I have these type of conversations on the podcast all the time about the conversion of non-golfers and bringing them into the game. Of course, whether it's Top Golf or Drive Shack and other uh, immersive entertainment experiences that are more compressed also physically and also time-wise are the future, are that gateway. And that certainly does not replace the beauty of traditional golf. But as you see very well also, it helps get all those non-golfers out there, the which is a massive unlocked market, both, let's say, with women, younger golfers, multicultural groups that are, have not been invited and made feel welcome to golf in the past. And that's just a huge business opportunity in the already, what, $84 billion a year industry that We Are Golf calculated last year. 
It is. And, and actually, I will say that we unveiled our facility platform, our cloud-based platform at the 2017 symposium. And that was exciting. And I was very proud to have unveiled that with our team. But I, I have to say the sort of the most emotional part of that symposium was when Golf BC had members of its board of directors on to talk about the diversity of the game in, in your city and in your province and how Golf BC has changed the face of its, its leadership and its board to reflect that, the diversity of the golf community in British Columbia. And it, it really was, was an awesome experience to hear their perspectives on the game and realize how even though we come from very different cultures, we have this common bond with the game that we love. So it was, it was exciting. Yeah. And British Columbia Golf is a fantastic organization. Not to say that because they're one of our sponsors here on the podcast, but I, exactly. uh, Chris Jonathan, who leads that organization up, has just been the biggest ambassador and champion of what I'm doing here with the Mod Golf podcast. And in fact, he made the introduction to the two of us. So without him, I would not have the pleasure of speaking with you here today, Matt, yes. without question. And vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. So they, they do incredible work. And yeah, they certainly support what we do in our, in our partnerships. And and I intentionally said the word partnership because I want to segue into that because I want to ask you this. With the USGA, obviously a very big organization with a lot of resources, but whether you're a, a startup on your own or a larger organization, you don't want to be siloed. And as they say in the startup space, that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. So I want to ask you this, Matt. Do you have partnerships crossing over with GCSAA, the Golf Course Superintendents Association? Do you work with them technically and also experientially rather than working in silos, perhaps developing the same thing in isolation rather than working with each other to move things forward in a more rapid fashion? Yeah, sure. I wouldn't mind giving two examples, one from the core innovation work that our team is working on, and then maybe an example from something a little more traditionally, our role is trying to lead the game from a, a few different perspectives. So on the cloud-based platform, we have a couple of different partners already. We partner with a, a firm that has golf course geometry database. And so they serve that information up to a lot of GPS devices and cart-based GPS systems. And we uh, have partnered with them to ingest that golf course geometry data so that when a superintendent wants to take a look at his golf course or her golf course, they don't have to go in and, and hand draw all the outlines of the fairways and the bunkers and the tees to begin to use the platform. So we already have that data available for them. And then we also ingest some very accurate and high-tech weather data. But we have also been speaking with a lot of potential partners, both on the facility finance side, on the apps that are able to help superintendents track the actual application of their products so that we can begin to build databases of what's being actually applied to the golf course and when it's being applied to the golf course. And we certainly have a long history partnering with universities and researchers around the country. So being able to take the research that they're working on and move it more quickly into practice is, is definitely a potentially compelling feature of getting into this platform. Right. What we've tried to do is build the platform very quickly, but build it in keeping in mind that we want to bring in as many partners as possible. Because for a for-profit company, ultimately, you're trying to make a difference, but you're trying to do so producing a profit. 
for us as a nonprofit, we're definitely not trying to produce a profit. What we're trying to do is have impact. Instead of uh, thinking about profit, we definitely have measures around the impact we're having. So what savings are we bringing to our customers? What improvement in, in their golf experience are we bringing to our customers? So when I look at it through the lens of our in-house startup, we definitely work with a lot of folks and looking to partner with more and more. On something that you might think more traditionally about the USGA, if I take the example of our, I'm not sure if you or your users are familiar with what we call the Distance Insights Project, but this is a project where we're researching the causes and effects of distance on the game. And I think that in the past, that's an area where we would have very much thought about being very insular. And with our partners across the pond at the RNA, I think we would have done a lot of in-house work, done a lot of conversations between the two bodies, and then sort of reached a decision. Well, this time around, we built on the example of our rules modernization, and we have been very intentional about trying to understand, trying to be empathetic towards not customers in this case, but stakeholders in the game. And so we've done a tremendous amount of research with stakeholders across the entire game and across the entire industry. We've invited participation by anyone who wants to contribute uh, original research to the project. So I feel very proud that this has been a much different process than I might have experienced 20 years ago or 19 years ago. And it definitely gets back to this notion of we can go fast alone or we can be more effective and do it right by partnering. Love that. That's really good to hear. You did mention the rules there, the revised rules of golf. I know that's a completely different group within the USGA that, that's working with, with the RNA. It is. Yeah. You're not going to get me to speculate on anything, but but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, we actually had one of the gentlemen that was part of that group was for the joint committee there. So uh, we got his opinion, so we don't need to jump in that. But I am curious to ask you this. Were you consulted at all with the kind of the innovation side with some of the rule changes, or at least for your feedback or input on that in any regards, or is that done in, in isolation? Were you helping inform some of the rules changes that they've now implemented? Well, the good news is, is that that process began many, many years ago. And so even though our group wasn't founded, there has been in the USGA's DNA in the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, a much more focus on our customer. We've included it in our strategic planning, whereas before we had this notion that our customer was some nebulous thing called the game. We're now much, much more intentional about engaging with our customers as golfers, golf fans, as facility professionals. And so I think it really was not our group by any means that had an influence on that, but just a general sense at the USGA. To be a modern and relevant association in golf, we had to be much more intentional about understanding and empathizing with the customer. Got it. Yes. Well, we speak about empathy all the time, the kind of the empathy quotient that sadly not everybody has, not all business leaders have, not all innovators have, that they are very insular in that case. So their emotional intelligence is not overly high. But as you know, also empathy is something that can be can be learned and you can train like a muscle. You can actually improve your uh, your empathy awareness without question. And yeah, and put in processes. You know, I'm an engineer at the end of the day, so I, I do love processes. <laughs> uh, you can definitely put in processes to make sure that you are in your overall process to make sure that you are understanding the voice of the customer and even better yet, going in and watching them in their world so that you truly can understand where they're coming up from. Just making sure that you actively include that as part of your overall process. And then the whole best practices around how to measure the customer experience. We've become much more savvy about that, which is, I think, 
if you were to ask 10 regular golfers, they wouldn't realize that the USGA has made that shift. But I think that things like Innovation Symposia and, and maybe coming on podcasts like yours uh, is a good way to start to change the way people think about how we go about our business. Yeah, raising awareness without question, one one conversation at a time. Exactly. Yeah, well, I actually love the fact that you get out of the building, and I tell a lot of uh, startups and fledgling entrepreneurs the same thing. You've got to get out of the building and have conversations and talk to people, which sometimes isn't easy, especially if people are introverts, and not to say that you are, but yes, that, that's difficult for people to actually get out there and start asking questions, and it sounds like you're doing the right thing as part of that lean startup methodology also, and just getting out there and asking questions questions and getting answers and validating your assumptions there very quickly there rather than just uh, keeping it close to yourself. So I'm a, I'm a self-diagnosed extroverted introvert, which means <laughs> I, I would naturally tend to, to be an introvert, but I've trained myself to be a little more outgoing. It can be exhausting sometimes, but it, it definitely has made me a, a much better scientist and, and I think a much more effective innovator. I, I like to think that I used to be an inventor uh, and I think that now I'm, a, I'm an innovator. So. Nice. Nice. I like that transformation that you've uh, made over the years. And speaking of transformation, just to finish up here, Matt, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And I asked this question to end most podcast episodes here about the future. And I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say the future of golf or the future of the USGA. That's just too big. But to focus on your world, where do you see, you've been at it for almost two years now with the Research Science and Innovation Group. What would you like to see the trajectory of the group in the next, let's say, two, three, five years as you progress? Because it sounds like this thing has some traction and it's validated its existence and it's only going to expand. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I, I wouldn't mind giving from two slightly different perspectives. Yeah, go for it. But I think from the products that we're developing in our platform, what we have in our hands is a, you know, and I give all the credit into the world to our lead technology guy. He's developed what I think is a, a world-class data platform and mapping platform that speaks sort of the vernacular of golf. So it, it is ready-made to be leveraged around the golf industry. And I really do think that the ways that we can combine data sets from all over the golf course and all over, all across the customer experience, I think the sky's the limit. And I will say that one of the great things about working for the USGA is that I think we do have a lot of trust within the industry. And if anyone can be in a place to help the industry talk to each other and, and to communicate and share data to lift all of our boats, I, I think the USGA is very well positioned to do that. So I'm quite excited that I think we're at the right time and the right place that the industry is hungry for this kind of collaboration and that we can help facilitate it both from our relationships and our trust and from our technology. So that's, you know, a very exciting. And then structurally at the USGA, I will say that our Distance Insights project that I referred to a little bit is really been a, an effective cross-functional team. And I think that lots of times that we've worked here, you know, we thought about things through the lens of our own department, but this project has brought together people as diverse as engineers and agronomists to historians and marketers. And I think we've done so in a, in a very effective way. And I look forward to bringing more of that diversity of thought and approach to hopefully everything that we do here. Well, thanks for providing those insights there. And what I really love about this conversation is, personally, I did not know too much about the USGA as far as the internal workings and the overall mandate. So you've pulled back the curtain very nicely to let us see really what goes on at the USGA now, in the past, and also in the in the future. Because I know, and I see this, and I'm sure you hear it also, that what happened at Shinnecock this year, and it's happened in the past, that unfortunately, and I, I think you've gotten a, a bad rap publicly, that you get this negative blowback with the USGA 
of things that have happened in a very acute or one day moment. And some golf opinions are formed around that. And I think that's completely unfair. I'm just going to put myself out there because you do so much more than that over the course of 365 days a year in the golf industry. So I want to thank you for what you've actually said here today. Well, thank you. If, if I could, I, yeah. I'll just, you know, I'll just tell you that there is no apologies for what was perceived as maybe challenges with the golf course at Shinnecock. I, I can tell you firsthand, we do not sort of just blow that off. We are a lot more, I think, structurally, internally set up to reflect and to do that introspection after the fact and to learn from it and to try to do better next time. And I, I do think that is not what people perceive about the USGA. And, and again, we, we are all trying to be evangelized that we are dedicated to learning from our mistakes. Well, thanks for sharing that too. And so to finish up here, Matt, where can our Mod Golf podcast listeners find out more about not only the USGA, but also what you're doing directly with the Research Science and Innovation Group? Sure. Well, USGA.org is a great place to start. And then if you go to uh, advancing the game at USGA.org, you'll see a lot of about the work we're doing. Uh, you'll see lots of stuff on pace of play and our innovative data platform. Uh, and you'll also see a lot of information about our distance insights project and the way that our green section is helping support a sustainable game going forward. Fantastic. And as I always do for our listeners in the show notes and also in your guest bio page, I will include all the links that you just mentioned. I'll also sprinkle in some links and more information about a lean startup and the lean startup methodologies if anybody's interested in that. Because we do have a lot of non-golfers listening to the podcast that just love the entrepreneurial journey, that love innovation, that love startup culture. So the fact we're bringing in all these other tribes here, and I'm very proud of the fact I've had people that are not golfers yet, I like to say. I think we're going to convert some of them there. But the fact they listen to the Mod Golf podcast because they get something out of it too, even though they're not directly into the golf industry or a recreational golfer yet themselves. So hey, with that, Matt Pringle, Senior Director of Research, Science and Innovation with the USGA. Matt, I want to thank you so much for your time today. You have enlightened me. I've learned a ton here today. And I have a feeling our listeners have learned some things also. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Colin. I've enjoyed it. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt Pringle, who is the Senior Director for Research, Science, and Innovation with the USGA. I'd love to hear what resonated with you in this episode, so please share your thoughts by emailing me at colin at modgolfpodcast.com, and I promise to get back to you. If you'd like to learn more about the groundbreaking work Matt and his science, research, and innovation team are doing at the USGA, go to our episode page where we've included links and photos to provide you with additional content. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Nextlinks, for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. And I also want to send a big welcome to our newest sponsor, Golf Genius Software, whose CEO Mike Zisman was my guest a few episodes ago. Without all of their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Join me next time as my guest is Golf Canada President, Lawrence Applebaum when we dive into all the innovative initiatives his organization is creating for all levels of golfers and the thought leadership they are showing around the world. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.